0: Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Jasmine Singer. And this is Marianne Sullivan. And this week, Marianne will be speaking with Nirva Patel, who is a passionate animal advocate, a lawyer, a biomedical engineer, and someone who wears many hats within animal advocacy, including as the chair of the board of Farm Sanctuary, executive producer of a number of films, including The Game Changers and The End of Medicine, as well as being the global policy fellow in the brooks mccormick junior animal law and policy program at harvard law school so not really anything impressive yeah
1: and she also has four kids <laughs> I, really don't, I don't really get how she does all these things but yeah, she is the real deal just you know she just does so many different things and they're all connected by really what is a passion for animals. And we talk about that. And we also talk about, you know, her history as a Jane, her family as Jane, and the connections between Jainism and animal advocacy. Really interesting interview and lovely woman.
0: Very cool. I'm really looking forward to that. So I know that last week I had an announcement, which was that I am training to be the host of Weekend Edition at WXXI, which is Rochester's NPR station affiliate. And I did start training, by the way. I am not on the air yet. I'll probably be on the air toward the end of January. And there's so much to learn with like the master board. And oh my gosh, it's like bananas. But that's not my news. I did
1: want to ask you a question, which I guess could ask when we're not on the, <laughs> on the air.
0: But, but but like, what are you going to be, like exactly what are you going to be doing? Reading the news? The position is hosting, writing, and reporting. So what I cover on Weekend Edition will be news, But I will also be producing a segment, at least one segment each week that won't be airing on the weekend. It'll be airing throughout the week. You don't have anything to do with the music? No, and that's a separate station. It's all within WXXI, and it overlaps for the news, but then there's one station that goes to the classical and then there's one that is NPR. I'm going to have to learn more about my
1: local uh, public radio station now that you're going to be on it. I always listen to the classical music station. Well, I don't always listen to it, but occasionally I listen to the classical music station. So the other station is all talk.
0: Yeah, it's NPR. So it's the the way the affiliate stations work is that NPR is doing their broadcast and then They'll usually toss it to the, your local station for 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 whatever for the news for a local show. Like there is a show here in Rochester called Connections, which is a lifestyle talk show hosted by Evan Dawson, and it's fantastic. It's every day for two oh, hours. I would listen to that. Yeah, yeah, it's very good, very very good. Yeah, he so he does like two shows because each hour is its own show. So he does Monday through Friday two shows a day on different subjects. And they're like bringing, Wow, people. I know, right? But anyway, I am really enjoying learning something new. And and I, I started my shift at 6 a.m. the other day and I managed to get there on time somehow.
1: That seems like such a basic accomplishment. You've started off the day by with a huge accomplishment getting there at six o'clock.
0: Well, and there were street closures. And let me tell you, navigating street closures at like 5.45 a.m. is not fun. Anyway, this is so boring. I have a much more exciting announcement than that which is, and you of course know this, and this is the first time I'm saying this publicly, which is that Moore and I adopted a dog. Yay. And he's the cutest. He's just the cutest. His name is Murray. My grandfather's names were Murray and George. Our other dog is named George. So uh, I think that's kind of fun. I like using family names for for my animals. That's Right?
1: I think it's a nice custom.
0: Fox and Eugene are both family names. Fox being a last name and Eugene being your father's name.
1: Right. And my grandfather's name. Hey, Eugene.
0: Right. You remember.
1: (laughs) Remember me. I'm that chick who danced with two times two the Rufus album Friday night at that party.
0: Okay. I don't think people tune in to hear us singing, but maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, so... Murray is a dog that I never thought I would adopt, but as we know, dogs happen. And if you listen to Our Henness with some kind of regularity, you know that I lost my beloved birdie dog a few months ago, and she was my heart and soul, my soulmate. Actually, my grief around her has been swelling a lot lately. And that's not why we got Murray. I mean, what can I say? I I go on PetFinder sometimes, just like I go on Zillow. It's a thing I do. It's a thing a lot of us do. And for some reason, I thought George was kind of being mopey since... Bernie left and then I thought Stella our cat would really enjoy having you know a act a more active dog somebody to somebody to beat up
1: which is <laughs> pretty much what Stella does right Well
0: we we have been getting senior dogs and you know I'm thrilled that I did because I love George and Bertie very much but also I, I wanted to adopt a younger dog which I've never done. The when with you, I had Rose and I met her when she was two. So she was young, but this is the first time that I actively adopted a younger dog. He's just shy of two. And this is the other thing. And I'm like holding myself back from saying it, which we can discuss, but he is a miniature poodle. Do I look like a fucking poodle person? I'm more of like a Chihuahua pit bull person, which are the only kinds of dogs I've ever had. I don't like what kind of like a
1: person you don't like poodles.
0: I you know, I think it's fine. I love him. I love poodles. It's just that I think I have like cute dog shame or something. Like <laughs> first of all, he looks bot. He does. I think from
1: what you told me, they said he was a mix, but he just—he's not. Like if you look up poodle in the in the
0: dictionary, it looks like him. Yeah, yeah, he he looks very much like a poodle. I did don't tell him, but I did get him a DNA kit for Christmas. But, <laughs> but we're kind of back on it. Oh my god! It. Now that you should be embarrassed about. <laughs> and George, we got a kit to find out how old he is, because that's another kind of kit you can get. Cause we don't really know. Cause we adopted him when he was maybe 12, maybe we don't know. And now that was three years ago. So we, we want to know, cause at this point it's a big difference. We also got a DNA kit for Stella, the cat. Please don't tell anyone this in my family because the, the dogs and the cat don't know. Anyway. Well, wait a second. What is the cat? It's the same it, Does thing? it prove that she's a cat? <laughs> Well, there's, I don't know, I I didn't want to get that for her, but I thought she would be jealous of the dogs. (laughs) 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 So I just thought, okay, and I'm not going to be the one to swab her mouth, just so that we're clear. That's not going to be my job. I'm not. I don't even understand it. Like she's a. Well, I mean, I
1: know there are breeds of cat, but it never entered my mind that Stella was anything, but what do they call them? Domestic short hair, which, you know, it's like all, all the cats except for the few that have been bred.
0: Can I tell you a funny story? I have a friend who recently adopted a couple dogs and she did the DNA test for them. And in, in the results, they located another dog, uh, nearby her named Cookie, who the dogs were related to. <laughs> oh my God. It's like finding your cousin on 23 and May. So she went online and somehow found this dog who has an Instagram profile. I'm not kidding. And she messaged them and was like, because she wanted to find out, I don't know, if if her, something about, like, one of their behaviors or something. And she was like, I'm not a stalker, but blah, blah, blah. And the person blocked her. Isn't that weird? Oh, that's totally weird yeah, and troubling. I said, maybe they're a breeder. Like, maybe they're the breeder. And, yeah. and she adopted the dog. Yeah. I don't know.
1: Who knows? But in any
0: case. So back to Murray. He is definitely a handful. Like I love him and he is the cutest dog ever, but he he is remarkably cute and very, very sweet and loving.
1: And yeah, he's a puppy. I mean, I think that he's, I don't think he's that, I I actually think he's pretty well behaved considering that he's, well, I mean, maybe not a puppy. You said he's almost two, but he's never really been, I mean, he's he's house trained sort of, and, and, you know, he wasn't brought up that well.
0: We got him neutered when we got him. So I think maybe he regressed. I don't, I have no idea. But anyway, so we we put him in this class and this week he starts it. But last week there was a Zoom orientation. And so we went to the orientation. I assume you're in the class as well. You just didn't put him in the class. No, we are there as well. Yeah. And so the teacher was like, I was so impressed with how animal rightsy she was. Like, she was just talking about everything from the animal's perspective. It's something, it's things you say. Like, how does he know to not pick up that slipper, but pick up that dog toy? Like, he's just kind of being himself. And yeah, he's just trying until somebody tells him. How would he know? Now At some point, she even talked about zoo animals. I don't even remember how it came up, but she just talked about how awful it is. Like, I was so into this. And then, and I know this isn't going to be a surprise for anyone because we don't live in a vegan world yet, but maybe by the time this airs, we will. I don't know. She said that when you come to the class, bring the high quality treats, like definitely like a high quality meat or cheese. Yeah. And we've been training it with like, we, we cut up little pieces of vegan hot dog, like tiny little pieces and he absolutely loves them. They're great for training. Yeah,
1: dogs tend to really like vegan hot dogs. All these people who tell you you have to use meat. I think it's valid in the fact that you have to have really high quality treats, but they've never tried using vegan meats. They don't even understand that vegan meats really exist. They
0: don't understand that dogs like them. Exactly. So, I just was I don't know there was there are some people who you want more than, I mean, you want everyone to be vegan, but it's more disappointing when you find out that some aren't. Totally. And so at some point she's also saying like one of the things you do in the class is you're in this sort of circle and people go and give the dog next to them a treat. Like, I don't know why. I mean, it has to do with the training. And I was like, uh, okay. with our treats, right? Like not the person's treats. And so She's like so that's good. But in any case, I have not I I'm just telling people for the first time right now and I think it's partly because I lost Birdie so recently and I know this is very quick and it was ve- much sooner than I thought we would get an animal and sh- this this darling dog is not a replacement. I mean, that's impossible. Like, you can't replace my darling birdie. And I also have that sort of vegan shame of like him being a cute little poodle. So it's weird what's going on internally for me. Oh, lighten up. Just lighten up. Like, who cares?
1: I mean, there are people who think of their, you know, there are dog people who get the same breed and then name them the same name. Now there's something Bizarre around that, but you were going through grief, and and this dog kind of appeared, and and was a comfort in your life. Like, get who cares what people think?
0: I'm getting to that point. I just wanted to say that I, I mentioned it to someone else who's vegan, and they they were like, "I know exactly what you mean." And then they explained a story that they're going through, and it was very similar, where they had done everything like you know, ethically and aligned with veganism. And, and because it wasn't like they were heroic in the situation, they were afraid of being judged. And I realized like vegans can be real assholes. And we are, you know, when we put ourselves out there, I mean, everyone can be assholes and non-vegans are the biggest assholes. I I can be an asshole. I I frequently am. Okay. No comment. But... (laughs) (laughs)
1: Your comment was supposed to be, no, you've never, uh, no, that's not you. That's
0: not what you're like at all. You can be like, you know, a little sharp, I would say. You can be a little sharp sometimes. Really? Exactly. What do you mean by that? All right. I think we should change the subject because I want to briefly, before we get to the guest today, I want to briefly talk about Vegconomist because they, well, it's actually not about Vegconomist, but Vegconomist covered a story of a new a new study that came out from ProVeg International talking about how vegan or plant-based labeling impacts mainstream appeal. And this is something that you and I have been talking about for ages. In fact, not that this will ever happen, but I think it would be interesting to like string together every conversation we've ever had about this to, because I'm sure we've changed our perspective about it. But it is kind of fascinating to hear what came out in the survey. Well, I'm not sure it's fascinating if you're if
1: you're up on all of the reports because I'm not sure it's anything really new here. I just think it's really important for us to stay on top of this. Both is useful when we're talking about vegan foods to other people and which hopefully we're doing a lot of and it just gives you kind of insight into how people think. This is a new survey, and I think it was from ProVeg. It took place in the UK. So they were asked to describe and write their views on the terms animal free, meatless, meat free, 100% plant based, plant based, veggie, vegan, and vegetarian. And like I said, not too surprisingly, what consumers were most likely to choose was a a plant-based product with the label 100% plant-based, plant-based or veggie. And I think veggie is actually a somewhat more popular term in the UK than in the US. So I'm not sure that one would cross the Atlantic. I think it makes total sense. I'm actually not surprised. I'm not sure that we have changed our point of view on this. People like to look at the positive and they don't think the negative is that negative. So things like meatless and vegan were the least preferred labels. And I have always thought like vegan is a problematic label. Even though it is the word I love more than any word in in the English language probably, we should use it in the right contexts when so that we familiarize people with it and so we show how proud we are of it. But in labeling a product, I understand why people why people don't buy it. They think that if it's labeled vegan, they see it and they think oh that's for vegans. I'm not I'm not a vegan. I just think that's even though that's stupid, I, I just think that's very likely the, the mindset that goes on. Vegan was perceived as animal and eco-friendly, it just didn't make people buy it. Vegetarian and veggie were, were rated affordable and easy to access. So that's an interesting point of view. But the most chosen one is 100% plant-based or plant-based. We've seen that that's what most of the companies are using, and I understand why. They're not trying to convince people to adopt the word vegan and to adopt like a, a whole mindset toward animals. They're trying to sell their products. And and so it's up to us to spread the use of the word vegan in a positive way. But if you're selling food, call it 100% plant-based.
0: Yeah. There was a point where that was meat-free, that the the kind of best practices according to some research, maybe 10 years ago or something. No, I, that was in Nick Cooney's book that,
1: that the best, uh, term was meat free. I think that has been, I think we thought it was wrong then. And I think it's been proven wrong. Like it just doesn't work. Yeah. Uh,
0: so fascinating to me, I find it interesting to hear like how people are absorbing the vegan sphere and, I think personally that it doesn't matter (laughs) when, you know, I know a lot of vegans get sort of up in arms about like what to label things and what to label yourself and this and that. And I just want people to stop eating animals. And my guess is that our guest today would completely and totally agree that people should stop eating animals. In fact, I'm sure she would. So let's get to that interview. Nerva Patel is the Global Policy Fellow in the Brooks McCormick Jr. Animal Law and Policy Program at Harvard Law School and a passionate advocate for animal welfare. She is also a registered patent attorney, biomedical engineer, executive producer for several plant-based films, including The Game Changers, The End of Medicine, and Meet Me Halfway, and serves as the chair of the board of Farm Sanctuary and secretary of the International Vegan Film Festival. Nerva holds a BS in biomedical engineering from Boston University, a JD from the New England School of Law, and an MS in animals and public policy from Tufts University. Her passion for animals is predicated on the Jain philosophy of Ahimsa, which means nonviolence and is tattooed on my ankle, which advocates a vegan lifestyle. She lives in Boston with her husband, four children, and two rescued rabbits, goji, and spice. She will be joining Marianne right after this. Did you know that Dr. Bronner's is more than just soap? That's right, the ethical personal care company that we all know and love now makes chocolate, my favorite food group. And not just any old chocolate, in true Dr. Bronner's fashion, this chocolate exemplifies ethical chocolate excellence and is sourced from regenerative, organic, and fair trade supply chains. How cool is that? And speaking of cool, just in time for the holidays, they have released an all new cool peppermint cream flavor. Oh, so good. I know when I think of Dr. Bronner's, peppermint is the first thing that comes to mind. So this is the perfect new addition to magic all one chocolate line, which already has several other chocolate flavors, including salted dark, roasted whole hazelnuts, crunchy hazelnut butter, salted whole almonds, salted almond butter, and smooth coconut praline. Yum. Now I want some chocolate, but when do I not want chocolate? What a great holiday gift these would make for your loved ones or for yourself, because treat yourself, am I right? To find out more, go to www.drbronner.com. that's www.drbronner.com to grab yourself some chocolatey holiday cheer.
1: Welcome to our hen house, Nirva.
0: Thank you so much. Very happy to
1: be here. I'm very happy to have you here. You're really doing such a variety of things, and it's you're kind of like the quintessential activist. You've gotten involved in a bunch of different things, and they're all really interesting, and they're all really passionate. I'm not sure where to start, so I thought maybe we'd start at the beginning. And because your roots in animal activism and veganism really do start from your childhood because you you have a background in Jainism, which we've talked about before on the podcast, but... I, I can never talk about it enough because it's so interesting. Can you just tell us a little bit about your childhood, you know, where you grew up, attachment to animals, and specifically how Jainism
2: was, a, was part of, of that development? Sure, Marianne. I grew up in Ashland, Massachusetts, to a Jain father and a Hindu mom. And we grew up vegetarian, my sisters and I. So we did not eat meat. We did not eat chicken, fish, eggs, eggs. But we were, you know, very aware of the fact that we lived in a society that did consume all of those products. Jainism is one of those religions, probably the only one in the world, that has a strict adherence to a compassionate diet. So Jainism has this a philosophy that there is a universal instinct for self-preservation, which translates to... Every single thing wants to live. Every single living being wants to live and thrives to live. And and, uh, if we are to get in that the path of that will to live, we incur bad karma, if you will. So we grew up knowing that whether it's a plant, an animal, a small ant, we should respect that there is this notion that that being wants to live. So we used to I remember when like flies were caught in the house or mosquitoes were caught, we, we would open the window, we would conscientiously free that trapped creature. We did not wear leather, we avoided, uh, you know, there are things that I have learned along the way, but I, I think that was my fundamental foundation for respecting all living beings as a member of the Jane diaspora in America.
1: My understanding is that, that proselytizing isn't really part of the Jain religion. People are born Jain and I guess they could become Jain, but it's not part. Of, you're not trying to make the world Jain, but, but kind of you have gotten to the point where you want, you want to proselytize, maybe not Jainism, but certainly animal compassion. That's what you're maybe proselytize isn't exactly the right word, but it is kind of what we all do. So can you just talk, talk about the difference between practicing respect for animals yourself as a Jain? and as an individual and taking on the work of persuading others
2: to do so as well is there is there conflict there or is it a natural outgrowth or what yes so that's that's a that's an incredible question because jainism is is rooted in nonviolence but within the religion there are different interpretations of what exactly how to carry that practice out So while some Janes will not eat root vegetables like potatoes and onions and carrots, because when you pluck that root vegetable from the ground, on the one hand, that vegetable can never grow again because you're plucking it from its root. So that's like very violent. And then surrounding that root vegetable, there's an entire microscopic ecosystem of bacteria and worms and and insects. And so, you know, a lot of Janes will not even eat root vegetables, but on the other hand... Dairy in the form of ghee and butter and yogurt is accepted in many for many Jains both in India and the US. So in, in the sense that I'm not proselytizing or spreading the, the, the Jain mission, I do want to clear up certain aspects of the concept of ahimsa as the highest duty within the religion. And while dairy thousands of years ago may have been less harmful, than dairy is today. It is still. It's a current debate within the Jain community whether we should we should just continue to consume ghee and and yogurt and dairy products, or we should change the way we view dairy as a a harmful, bad karmic ridden uh, food. Yeah, I I think
1: that you've actually done some work here in encouraging Jane Temples to give up dairy. Can you talk about that? And I'd be interested to hear about what kind of pushback you get. It's such an interesting topic because really here is a religion and a philosophy that is rooted in the very concept of compassion and letting others live. And yet even there, tradition Enters into kind of getting in the way of people hearing. You know, people don't want to change, and even in this area where people are are almost there, if they hear a new thing, I mean, and it's kind of a microcosm of the whole world not not wanting to change. Anyway, I'm going on and on. Just tell us the work about the work you've done in encouraging Jane Temples to uh, give up dairy, and what kind of pushback you've gotten, and what kind of encouragement you've gotten as well.
2: Sure. So growing up, you know, every Sunday my sisters and I would go to the Jain center which at that time was a rented out church in Norwood. And we would go there and there would be dignitaries, uh, saints, Jain saints who would visit the temple on a particular day. And we were asked as children to ask questions about Jainism and what's allowed, what is not allowed. I mean, the philosophy can be very strict. And I remember we we once asked Amara Saib, so uh, uh, one of the Jain saints. Uh, Is it, you know, is eggs allowed? And the saint said, well, eggs are not allowed because even though, but we were like, what if they're unfertilized? Then you're not actually killing anything. And the saint said, well, that egg has the potential, the purpose of that egg has the potential for life or the the intention of that egg is to create life. And so even though the the physical egg does not have a, a life in it, you're kind of destroying a purpose. And so that incurs bad karma as well. And as we grew up, we, we all consumed dairy. There was never a question. Dairy was kind of one of those things no one really talked about. Like ghee was so much a part of the Jain Center because ghee was considered, especially ghee, which is made from dairy cows versus the water buffalo. The dairy cow ghee is considered pure. And so in the Jain temple, you're only supposed to use very pure, very, you know, expensive, like items when you're doing when you're doing a puja or uh, a prayer ceremony. And so we um, I remember just thinking, okay, well, you know, we're vegetarian, we would never eat animals, but, you know, dairy is fine because it's a byproduct of an animal. We're not killing the animal. We're not incurring any harm. And as I you know, later learned what's behind that door that we probably were, were avoiding to open, it is a terrible, terrible scene of, as you know, you know mothers being artificially impregnated, babies being taken away, uh, discarded cows in India with no purpose after they've, you know, we, we know that whole story. I was shocked because when we lived in India, my husband and I lived in, in India for eight years. And I remember talking to many members of the Jain community. And I I, I said, how is this even allowed when dairy has, the, the industry, the under, industrial aspects of dairy has changed so much in India that it is so terrible and it, it's so harmful and and very violent. And how can this be accepted within the Jain community? So the response I got from people was very interesting. Some people said, well, you know, Nirva, If you look at our old scriptures, we have to, you know, we do things the way we have done them for thousands and thousands of years, and we can't make any changes. And if you look at our old scriptures and the the old texts, they even have references to Bhagavan Mahavir, our most recent Tirthankar. Like, I can go into that later about what Tirthankars mean, but there's references to, to Indian, to Jain dignitaries consuming dairy. So if they did it, it should be okay today. It's a byproduct. You know, yes, it is violent, but you know, we, we can't change things. So what I said to them was, but back then, I still would have disagreed with taking with taking milk from an animal because it's a taking. It's, you're, you're, you're kind of violating this female animal's body and you're taking something for your own consumption. Like, how do we even know if we got the texts correct? Like, I mean, who wrote these books, right? I mean, it, it's not consistent with the Jain philosophy of Ahimsa and and, you know, you, you, you just go back and forth in these debates. But ultimately, I think peop- it's very hard to change habits. It's hard for the Jain population, the Indian, the, the, you know, the Dharmic Indian population to stop consuming chai, to stop consuming all of the sweets and mitai that we eat at Diwali, that we eat around our festivals. Dairy is so ingrained. In the Indian culture, I mean, there are national com- campaigns around it. There was the White Revolution, where dairy was considered a sign of of strength. It was considered you are Indian if you consume milk. All the Bollywood actors were in advertisements in India. You know, it, it, it's deep rooted in our culture, and it's been something that I've been trying really hard to combat. When we moved back to the U.S., I wrote letters and I called a lot of the Jane Centers in the United States, and I. I presented the question of whether dairy should be a part of our ritual festivals. And there is a time in Jainism, which is, it's called Purushan. It's like, it happens in August, September. It's like the most holiest of times where you fast for days and you cleanse your body and you um, ask everyone for forgiveness. And it's a very auspicious time. And so what I asked the Jain centers to do is to not serve ghee during that time because the presence of ghee in the temple causes almost a shadow to all of the good intentions that people are are participating in during that religious um, period. So I started a campaign. It was a change.org petition. We got thousands of signatures and people, you know, a lot of people really understood and they said, okay, well, we can give it up for this, this one week. And it, it was highly successful. A lot of temples did not serve ghee during that week of Prayushan. So I continued to talk about that.
1: Yeah, that seems like a big triumph because it's sort of an acknowledgement that, okay, there's something wrong here. I just find the whole, even if it's only for a week, it's sort of an acknowledgement that this isn't a wonderful, a wonderful thing. But I just find it fascinating that people, (laughs) well, I guess I already said this. Who have embraced a philosophy that is almost there still have to, are so stuck in tradition. It's like a microcosm of the wider world where people are stuck in, you know, enormously more harmful traditions, but still like just can't, the, the mystery of why people cannot see their way out of this nightmare that we've created. And even in this, Even in this, like, almost perfect situation, people are still like, oh, no, we've always done it. All all the same excuses, all the same excuses for the, just for the one product. Yeah, just fascinating. But I don't want to spend, you're doing so many things. I don't want to spend the whole uh, interview talking about Jainism, though I definitely could. But um, as I mentioned in your bio, you aren't trained as a lawyer. And right now you're doing work at Harvard Law School as a global policy fellow, and I really,
2: really want to find out what you've been working on there. Can you can you tell us a bit about that? Sure. As you know, Harvard Law School has an incredible program dedicated to improving the lives of animals. We have you know, an academic component, and we also have a hands-on, bold clinic that serves as a little law firm within the law school. And it's all dedicated to animal protection. I have really enjoyed my time there. It's an incredible team. Most recently, uh, one of the projects that I worked on is an assessment and study of live markets and their potential for zoonotic disease. So my uh, the project that I worked on was studying two specific markets in India. Like one is a live poultry market and the other is a just a general market in Mumbai, which I have visited many, many, many times. And what we looked at was, okay, India seems to have all of these, these great laws. I mean, we have... We have laws that protect the quality of, of slaughterhouses. We have a prevention of, of cruelty to, to animals. We even have in our constitution that it is the fundamental duty of every Indian citizen to protect or show compassion towards animals. But the enforcement of such laws are not always as strong as the laws themselves. So in the wake of the pandemic, Harvard Law School embarked on this 14-country this deep dive of live markets. And their potential for zoonotic disease, and you know what we found was that people, many people visit these markets. I mean, whether you're, you're shopping for a mango or a, a puppy, everyone goes to these markets. And whether you see it or not, there are animals being slaughtered live. Their blood is being drained on the floors. People are stepping on the blood. There's a lot of. Uh, contamination then you have this whole wild bird population that comes in and further contaminates the food the whatever is being sold at the markets and it's like this perfect storm of creating this 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 almost reservoir for for potential zoonotic disease so we I worked on that project and it's it's almost complete what will the project be when you're done? Is it a, a white paper or to present to, the, to governments in exactly. countries where live market? I, I see. Yes. So we present policy suggestions on how to you just improve the implementation of otherwise sound and strong laws. So it's about, I think, 30 to 40 pages for each country. And we outline what's going on in India, and then we, we, we look at the laws, we look at the regulatory schemes, and then we advise on where we think India can partner up with, with local vendors and these markets to provide a better uh, situation that would keep people safe.
1: Do you see the public health implications as one of the real ins for legal policy change when, when animal welfare can be linked
2: to uh, public health implications as it is in the live markets? absolutely i think india of course everyone around the world focuses on what's the human health component of of animal welfare and this is something that i think the world is now paying attention to in the wake of the covid pandemic so india is one of those countries where we're we're prone to epidemics we they become endemic you know they never really leave the country so we um are uniquely positioned to have a greater sensitivity to disease
1: you mentioned that India has a lot of great laws, and we do tend to hear about them in some really fascinating cases that have gone through the courts, elephants and, uh, and other animals. But as always is the case, no matter where you are with animal laws, people talk a good game, but it doesn't always happen on the ground. But what do you see as, having looked at all these different countries, what do you see as the most significant differences between the approaches that legal systems take to animals? Do you see any as standing out?
2: Do you see them all as very similar? That's a tough question to answer. I think there has been some success in Indian courts to recognizing animals as an essential component of nature. And I think that's where we will find some sort of movement when we look at nature, you know, in this one health philosophy, right, where you look at nature, yeah, it makes sense to protect nature. But our animals are a critical component of nature. Our plants, you know, you know, plants are. But how much, how much can we separate animals from our food systems and into this ecosystem that we must protect? And I think, you know, the Indian Constitution has some language around that, but it's it's whether whether we're able to enforce those laws enforce that, that level of compassion, I, I'm hopeful. I'm definitely hopeful. It's going to take time, but you know, I'm hopeful. So rights of nature is a,
1: is, is an area that, that you think has promise. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I think we all have to face as lawyers that law can solidify change, but we don't often create it. (laughs) It's, It's a conservative enterprise and it, it doesn't impose, unfortunately, in this particular instance. So I guess, fortunately, in most instances, it doesn't impose new things on people. It just kind of comes up with ways to, at its best, to to make changes solid and enforce them. But change still has to come from the ground. On the speaking of on the ground, I understand that you you also worked with the clinic on the thule Elk case. Is that right? We have had we've had speakers on to talk about that. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Sounds like you did a lot of
2: different things at Harvard. Yes. So the Tule elk case was one of my first projects that I helped out with. And the situation in that case is that we have this amazing national park service. And there is an area in California called Point Reyes National Park where we have a population of elk that have, they're they're actually uh, native to the area, which means that we have to protect them in Point Reyes. But the problem is, is that area in Point Reyes is inhabited by cattle ranchers. And it has been inhabited for many years by cattle ranchers who have created fences To prevent the elk from eating the vegetation that they have designed for their own cows. And so you have this conflict where you have the interests of these native, this native elk population. And then you have the interests of the cattle ranchers who have been there, landowners on public land. Uh, grandfathered in uh, where our tax dollars pay for for that land but they're being inhabited by these cattle ranchers and so because of the the drought in california and the lack of just vegetation due to the drought and water sources the tule elk population started dying so they, they had massive die-offs and the park service said well this is all natural and this is what happens you know when there's a drought and it has nothing to do with these cattle ranchers being there they're activists in the in the area. This has brought a lot of like public attention, and it even brought the attention to to Harvard Law School, where we we tried our best. You know, we petitioned the National Park Service to take care of these elk, and you can't ship in water to them. You can't really take down those fences, but you know, what is there a duty to protect this dying population of elk? And unfortunately, we didn't we didn't win on those grounds, but because the National Park Service said that they are doing the best that they can in that situation. And it's just sad because these elk are just going to, they're going to suffer, they're going to starve, they're going to, you know, start eating poisonous plants. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? They're going to become desperate in that area. And it it was really hard to know and to learn about that because I, I didn't know that there was this entire population of cattle ranchers who are selling they have their cows, they're selling beef, they're selling cheese, they, their ice cream is famous in that area. And it was just a very, continues to be a sad situation. Yeah, it's a terrible situation.
1: I'm sorry to hear that none of the legal work has been successful. I didn't really realize that. Are you
2: going to be continuing at Harvard in the coming year? Are, are you taking on more projects or is, or is that program done? I'm continuing at Harvard for the time period. I, I do not have other plans to move on, but there is a ton of work and it's been a great experience and we will we will see what, what the future holds. All right, I'll be looking forward to hearing that. I know that before you worked at Harvard, you received a master's
1: in animal law and policy from, from the Tufts program. And I know of a few people who, particularly very smart people with academic backgrounds who want to get into at, like they come to a point in their life where they want it, they want to do this and and they're looking for a way in. And of course, an academic route is natural to them. It strikes me that you're one of those people. Is that true? And can you tell us a little bit about that program and, and, and how it helped you kind of, I ask this because I think there are so many people and probably a lot of people listening who want to devote their life to this and are just don't know how, how would I even
2: start? And it seems like you found a way to start. So my background is biomedical engineering. I went to law school. I became a patent attorney, but my passion was always animal protection. And I didn't understand that there was a career path to animal protection. In fact, I thought I would become a patent lawyer and invent all these things or protect inventions to, to end animal testing. So I I had like a creative plan for myself, but you know, life. Uh, moved me to Bombay. And and then we, you know, it took a lot of twists and turns. But when I I came back to the States after living in India, and I I said to myself, now I'm going to really, really dedicate my time to protecting animals, because that is what I could do day and night without ever getting bored, without ever losing interest. And it's just something that is so part of my core being. I looked at Ways to get educated. I mean, I, we don't, so much has changed in this space. And one of the things that I I do do is listen to this podcast because the speakers you have on this podcast it's like you're thinking about something on a particular day and the next podcast i don't know if you have like some intelligent software that understands can read <laughs> minds but <laughs> it just happens to be exactly what's on the podcast the next day that, that comment made me happier than anything that's <laughs> happened in a very long time well it's true it's true so i i looked up animal careers uh, uh, learning of, uh, how can you educate yourself on you know if you could go to you could go to a program at You know, Lewis and Clark, you could get your LLM. But like, if you just want to have like this 30,000 foot aerial view of all of these issues that face animals without going super, super deep and getting a PhD or an LLM on something, how would you do it? So, this program at Tufts is animal law and policy. And it is fantastic. They divide the program up into four different groups. One is companion animals. And you look at, you know, behavioral studies, there's a lot of research there. And then you look at wild animals and then farm animals and then animals in research. It's incredible. The professors are wonderful. I strongly recommend that as a path to anyone who wants to go into this space because you will learn things that you had never known existed. You will have points of articulation that you have never been able to to work out before in your in your mind and it's fascinating. I loved the science also. There was a, there was a whole research class that we had to take where we looked at studies of whether animal models in biomedical research is actually warranted. And we really, really had to defend those or argue against them. We studied aspects of social justice in this movement. And, you know, one of my papers on policy was about what's happening and what happened in, it's still happening, the hog farms in North Carolina and the policy monopolies that exist there that make it almost impossible for anyone to, to stand up against them. And uh, we, so it, it's just an incredible program, and I highly recommend it. Yeah, it really
1: does sound incredible and so valuable because so often, most most of us who care about this issue, we didn't grow up on farms or we didn't grow up in any animal use industry or know anybody, and they know anybody in animal use industries, and they always use that against us, especially on the farm level, like as if just because you've eaten animals your whole life, you you you're not allowed to say anything or or you're not, and you're not supposed to know anything about what's really going on. And so having this kind of credentials to say, yeah, no, I, I I have this degree and I've learned a lot and I probably know more than you do be, you know, just because you're in the industry, that mostly means that you're biased. It doesn't mean (laughs) that you know a lot. So I think it's incredibly valuable, especially for very smart people who really, you know, some people can just jump into anything, but I think smart people feel a lot better if they have a lot of knowledge. You know, if they actually have have the have the credentials and 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 the knowledge, so that they can make a valid
2: argument. Right, and there's the textual knowledge, but also what you see visually. Like Tufts University has, you know, they have an agricultural. I mean, it's a veterinarian school. So I, I remember witnessing probably one of the most horrific things in my life, which was when, um, you know, it's a mixed group of students also. Some are very pro animal exploitation in the sense that we can eat, you know, we can, we can be really kind to animals and then we can eat them. And I, I remember, you know, being in those debates in my classroom, but having a respectful discussion, but we also witnessed, um, the artificial insemination of a, of a cow. And it was, it was so horrifying, so awful, but it makes you you know i remember just looking at the the poor cow you know she was um you know the the the, the technician that did it was very kind of macho and was showing us this magazine of bull semen and what it goes for and the cost of it. And, and, and and then he took out his big kind of rod and he was like, just so proud of what he was doing. And it was just an awful, awful scene. And what they do is they line up all the cows and they tie their heads into this little contraption, this contraption. And I remember everyone in the class was in the back watching what was happening. And I ran to the front and I was my, I was looking at her And seeing how she looked differently from all of the other cows, they all knew what was happening. It's like it had happened before many, many times, I'm sure. And she, her head was so low and everyone else's head was higher. And you can just tell, you know, like she, she was, it was just a terrible scene. But when you see something like that, you're watching your classmates observe that, you know, after that, that session, I had three classmates come up to me and they were like, tell us what what do we eat? How do we go vegan? There's no way we can, we can eat meat after seeing what we just saw.
1: Two just incredibly important things about that. The fact that you were there made them formulate that question. And, you know, if you hadn't been there kind of even silently bearing witness to the fact that this is wrong, might not have occurred to them. So that's so important. And also the fact that you have seen that as painful as it was, it's like having seen footage of terrible things happening to animals. You know, we all hate to do it, but you even more so because you've seen it in life, if anybody ever starts to talk to you about it, you can tell this and, and you have seen it. And and so few of us have. And, and so it's incredibly valuable, even though incredibly painful. So education, like forcing ourselves to learn what's really happening to animals really can be very useful, even though it's pretty hard, even though I've only done it on film, because there's no way they would let me in to see that and you know, I'm kind of grateful for that, but but also I just think it gives you so much credibility. All right. So um, that was a great, it, it seems like that was a great way to start your activist, can I call it your activist career? Because you're doing so many different things. And one of them that I want to talk about, though we're recording this ahead of time and this might have already happened or be about to happen, But I'm talking generally about filmmaking, but specifically about the International Vegan Film Festival, which is, as I said, it's coming up soon or it has already happened in Ottawa. So just tell us at this point, why you think film is important, because you have done a lot of work promoting film. And maybe if you can reveal anything about what's gonna happen at that film festival, I'd love to know.
2: Sure, I sit on the board of the International Vegan Film Festival and what they do is they bring documentaries and films about animals, whether they're a couple of minutes or an hour or too long, to the world. And although you know they, their film festival tend to be in Canada, they are an international organization. But it's a small group of people. We have a cookbook contest, and it's just it's just generally built around awareness of of documentary filmmaking. And I think films are extremely powerful. The first one that I had a chance to get involved with was The Game Changers where, you know, my sister was at a Sundance Film Festival and she was like, she, she called me up and she was like, there are all these vegans here talking about this movie and they're all, it's like athletes. And I was like, oh my goodness. And we had heard about this film through the grapevine. I'm sure every plant-based person had by that point. But I got the number of the nutritionist, the scientist behind the film, and I had a really long conversation with him. And we we talked about the film and we talked about the impact that the film could potentially have. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, like I thought this whole vegan vegetarian thing was such an Indian thing, such a you know thing that like I could never really Talk to people about, but here we are on the cusp of this this great movie, which I didn't know it was going to be great at that point. But they're basically unapologetically talking about the plant based diet and how it's it increases performance for all of these athletes like Serena Williams and Jackie Chan and Lewis Hamilton and Djokovic and Chris Paul and and I, I just couldn't believe it. So I got I managed to get a cut of the film and I remember sitting with my dad, who was you know one of the biggest inspirations to me as a child in terms of teaching me about animals and sentience. And, and, and we were watching it. And at the end, we just looked at each other and we just started crying. And it was, it was so incredible because you saw that this would resonate, you know, it it wasn't that preachy veganism. It was, it was backed by science. You know, it was screen after screen of just power, motivational um, messages. So the Game Changers was, was one of my first experiences in, in documentary filmmaking in the vegan space. And then, you know, I have supported other films. There's another film called The End of Medicine, which is a film about, it tracks the story of a veterinarian who goes into the field thinking, I'm going to help animals and I'm going to do something great for animals. And then she ends up cutting off, like, you know, plucking off pigs' teeth and, and cutting off their, their, their toenails and making it easier for, for people in the animal agricultural industry to do their jobs. And she realizes that, you know, this is, this is not what I wanted to do. This is, this was not my intention. And she had no kind of like emotional support. And then, you know, it, it you realize that like the AVMA says that, I think it's one out of six vets have contemplated suicide. And, you know, vets are 2.7 times more likely than, than the general public to die by suicide. And you think about all of these things, right? Like this conflict in an industry and, the end of the movie, you're like, well, so what is the solution, right? Like if you, if you have this skill, you love animals, you have this profession, you can't just like give up your job. So what is it? So, I mean, and this solution may not be there for everyone, but work at a, as a vet at a sanctuary, work as, as a vet at, you know, the MSPCA. There are options, whether they're practical or not, there, there are options, but it, it, I like focusing on films that, that really f- talk about this, this conflict, you know, where You go into this thinking you're going to save the world. You're going to save the animals. You're going to do all this stuff. And then the commercialization of the food industry makes it impossible to do that. And then what are the creative solutions that can tackle this terrible conflict? Yeah, I think that's a a great approach because I just think people like stories about
1: people. Yeah, there are some of us who like stories about animals. I'm not even a big, huge fan of stories about animals. I love animals, but we're humans, we're primates, we're interested in each other. And I'm interested in people who care about animals and I'm interested in their story. And that I think really moves people. And it's really hard also to make movies about what's happening to animals because it's too heartbreaking. But to take it that once removed and make a story about a person who cares about animals just as you do, I think really resonates with people. So I think that's one of the powerful things that movies can do, highlight, highlight those people
2: absolutely there's another film my favorite one is my octopus teacher and it, it's amazing i'm sure everyone who watch who's who's listening to this podcast has watched the film i don't need to go into those details but there was a scene in that film where i just it's haunting to me and it's i mean it, but this is about the animal her, herself where she's you know there's like a, a pool of fish and um the filmmaker the narrator is watching her and he's like well you know, we, we often look at animals and all of their behavior and we think, well, there's always a purpose. They're either hunting or they're protecting their young or they're, you know, sur- there's a survival skill associated with that action. But there's this one scene in the film where this school of fish passes by the octopus and she's just like waving her tentacles at those fish. But she'd already eaten. She wasn't protecting herself. She was safe. She was, you know, there was no survival purpose associated with that action. She was just playing. She was actually just playing. She was showing a joyful action. And I think that it is important for people to talk about people and why they're motivated, but also there are incredible stories of animals doing incredible things where we can relate to them as human beings too, so.
1: No, I I totally agree. I mean, I want the animals to be in there, but I do think one of the powers of the octopus teacher had to do with that guy's story, that, that the octopus's story came to you through a human lens, so... Uh, Yeah, uh, this isn't a hard and fast rule, and I don't know anything about filmmaking, but I always do think that human stories reach people. And uh, we haven't even gotten to the thing that I first wanted to interview you about. (laughs) So, and I've kept you for a long time already. But you also are the president of the board of Farm Sanctuary. And I really want to hear about that work, that board work, and and what it entails, and also what you're excited about that's going on at Farm Sanctuary, which, of course, has always been, you know, one of the leadership organizations, I think, for everybody in this movement, the granddaddy of all the sanctuaries.
2: Yes, thank you. So I am the board chair at Farm Sanctuary. It's, as you know, it's, I think, the largest and possibly oldest sanctuary in the United States, It's a powerhouse of talented people. We have over 100 employees, close to 1,000 rescued animals, so many acres in upstate New York. I think it's like 275. We have 26 acres in Acton, just outside of L.A., the animals the residents the, the you know the, their stories are incredible there we have cows that have run away to save their lives from slaughterhouses we have rescued pigs who've saved themselves from overcrowded trucks hot trucks sheep who've es- escaped ranches and then hid in neighborhoods and areas, staying calm, avoiding attention, and then being rescued and brought over to farm sanctuary. We have animals who require an extensive amount of veterinarian care, animals born with deformed features. Like one one of our animals has like a cross beak. There's ducks that have been abandoned from dumpsters. Farm animals protection in the United States is an interesting thing because farm animals are not protected. If there wasn't farm sanctuary and, and all of the sanctuaries in the United States, who would protect them right i mean the 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 american the animal welfare act does not it's they're excluded from that and their purpose in our society is only for food consumption which is which is really sad because as i was mentioning with the octopus teacher and talking about joy farm animals also have an incredible capacity for joy. And when you see them on the farm, you know, running and playing, they have best friends. Like they have, you'll often see a pair of two cows and they never leave each other and they're always seen together. Or you have cross-species best friends. You'll have like a cow and and a sheep that are always together. And it's incredible, incredible to see that. We're actually embarking on something very fascinating right now at Farm Sanctuary, which is called sanctuary-based research. Where we are, and it sounds bad, right? Like research on animals is something I would never, ever, ever support. But this is not this is not animal research. This is sanctuary based observational research. So the animals are not forced to do any of these things. We're, we're watching them. We're observing them. We're trying to find ways to link their emotions with with human emotion, the way we have done with cats and dogs. You know, we, we've attributed so many human-like emotions to cats and dogs, but we have not done that with farm animals. And that is kind of a necessary step to then advocating for them in our public environment. There is this concept that, again, animals are only there for, for survival, for food, for consumption, they're commodities, they belong in cages. But what we have observed is, is something very different. And you'll be seeing quite a bit of research coming out from this program. I'm
1: I'm really excited about that. And I actually am really excited about sanctuaries in general at the moment. I just feel like, though they've been an enormous part of the movement for a long time, and very important part, creating those connections between people and and these animals, I just feel like they're starting even more so to come into their own and and find activism opportunity, new activism opportunities and and different ways to use their experience with these animals, which nobody else has, as you pointed out, like, like we didn't know pigs growing up or no cows growing up. And they know these animals and they have so much to offer, like in, in different ways. So I love the idea of, of observational research. Where else could you possibly do that? And, uh, you know, the industry puts out its own observational research about whether, you know, they, they give an animal two terrible choices and see which one it chooses. That's not research. You know, it doesn't like and they tell you that this is the good one uh, because it's better than the bad one. I, you know, crazy stuff. So I think there are enormous opportunities. And and I love that sanctuaries are, are even more so coming into their own, I think. I think they, they were put down for a while as, you know, well, we spend too much money and they're not by the effect of altruists, but not at all. I think they're a very powerful part of the movement. I wish we could talk longer, but I have kept you very long, perhaps I could, because I, I want to ask you about your family, because in the middle of all of this, you also have four young children. So I don't know, I don't know how you pull this off, but uh, maybe we'll save that for the bonus segment. And uh, unless there's something you want to add here, we will
2: say, uh, we will say goodbye for now. I think that's fine. I mean, there's so much more I could say, but I, I think I've, ca- I've captured it all. You did a great job. Uh, this was, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I was just going to say it at Farm Sanctuary, animals are allowed to grow old. You know, I mean, if you think about the animals in our, in our food systems, they, they're only lived to like two years old, they're babies, you know, they're, they're young. It's, it's just a sad thing, but at Farm Sanctuary, they get to grow old and you really get to know them and throughout their entire lifespan versus just this short commoditized time. So um, yeah, absolutely. They nobody in the industry can tell you what an older animal is like.
1: As a matter of fact, I know that Gene Bowers talked about the fact that you know they bring animals when there's a strong need to the Cornell veteran, you know, which is an excellent veterinary school, and ex- they get v- good care. But Cornell, the people at Cornell have had to learn from the animals at Farm Sanctuary because they didn't know how to treat older pigs or older chickens. They've never they've never seen them before, so. Yeah, it's a real educational experience for everybody. It's, it's it's so moving. And you know, Farm Sanctuary has holds a very, very dear place in my heart because it was really the first place years and years ago that I visited all by myself. I remember driving up that dirt road. Uh there was nobody around checking into one of those cabins and and It was such an incredibly meaningful experience for me. So it's very dear to my heart. Thank you so much for sharing
2: all that you're doing, Nirva. It's really been fascinating. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Marianne. It was an honor to be here.
0: change the world for them. So thank you so much in advance for leaving us a friendly review. Anxieties
1: are rising. Our first story brings back one of our favorite commentators. That's Hannah Thompson-Weeman. She used to write the column on Meeting Place about basically us, about the animal rights movement. And, And now she has been In a very significant move about what the Animal Agriculture Alliance is all about, she has been made the president and CEO of the Alliance. This article is mainly quoting her, and the name of the article is Alliance Releases Reports from 2022 Animal Rights Conferences. Yes, they get to go to all of the conferences. I wish I was so lucky. And they get to report on them. They say really bad things about them. And the first line in this article is, the Animal Agriculture Alliance is encouraging agriculturalists to be aware of key activist trends, including undercover videos, marketing campaigns targeting human emotion, and legislative pressure. All right, there's so much in that sentence to unpack. First, agriculturalists? Where did we get that word? (laughs) It's a new one on me. I, I think, you know, like... These people who own factory farms and feedlots, they, they understand they can't really call themselves farmers, that that's a little ridiculous. And they can't really call themselves ranchers. I mean, if you own like a chicken factory. So what do you do? You call yourself apparently an agriculturalist to kind of group yourself in with, you know, the people who grow plants and feed us. Another interesting item here is that uh, one of the new activist trends is undercover videos. <laughs> Hasn't that been around for a while? Uh, undercover videos is in quotes. I'm not sure why, because uh, they are undercover videos, but but it's in quotes. Marketing campaigns targeting human emotion. God forbid, emotion should enter into it. And legislative pressure. Yeah, I wish there was more legislative pressure, but you know Hannah Thompson thinks there's more than enough. All right, here's a quote from Hannah animal rights extremist organizations are becoming increasingly more persistent in attacking the animal agriculture community through various channels, including pressuring our restaurant, retail, and food service customers. Well, isn't that like the whole thing? Isn't that what we do? Targeting the public with misleading emotional campaigns and using the legal system. It's just an outrage, isn't it? The whole article just kind of goes into detail about what she means about that. She's specifically referencing using the legal system by utilizing undercover videos as evidence in court. Isn't video of a crime being committed actually fairly good evidence? I don't know. Activists are pressuring elected officials to include animal rights in their political campaigns in order to bring their cause to the legislature. Now, I wish, I just wish that we had the wherewithal to pressure anybody as opposed to the animal agriculture industry, which, you know, has loads and loads of ways to pressure uh, elected officials, but, you know, whatever animal activists were encouraged to involve themselves more politically uh, at the, at these conferences. And she specifically quotes a talk by one assemblyman, Dan Benson of New Jersey's 14th district. I guess he's, I guess he's in the, the New Jersey legislature. I mean, God love him, uh, you know, and that's that's important, but he's hardly, you know, a senator in the United States Senate. But he echoed Connie Spence's statement. She's the founder of the Agriculture Fairness Alliance. When he was talking at ALDF's animal law conference by asserting, you have got to run for office. You've got to work on campaigns. Yeah, well, you know, not bad advice. And it is true that that's one, that was one of the themes of Connie Spence's talk and of Jane Vellas Mitchell's talk. All right, several sessions from the conferences focused on consumer outreach and the strategic marketing of the animal rights movement. This is where she's really upset that they're talking about emotion, trying, as, as Miyoko Shinner put it at ALDF's conference, we're trying to reach their hearts through their stomachs, but apparently trying to reach their hearts through their hearts now, too. According to this, Monica Chen, boy, they really hate Monica Chen, <laughs> of the Factory Farming Awareness Coalition It's talking about going into school by targeting children. Chen adds that these lessons taught early in childhood development help to quote foster the social disapproval around the consumption of animal products while normalizing plant based foods. Uh, Yeah, what a disgrace! (laughs) What a disgrace that anybody should want to want to do that. As if the agriculture. Industry does not do its best to get into every school in this country, including bringing its products in. Do you remember? Did you have to drink milk every day in school? It was disgusting. Uh, I, I never liked milk even before I was aware of where it came from. I always thought it was gross. My favorite crackers were Waverly wafers, and they didn't go well with milk at all. They were salty. All right. Extremist groups continue to rely on, quote, undercover videos to bring attention to their cause. Like, our cause. Yeah. That's what they like to think of it as. They don't like to think of it as the animal's cause. Talking about Sharon Nunes, who of course is the president of Animal Equality, who pointed out at HSUS's TAPA conference that in the eyes of the animal rights community, there is nothing more powerful or as revered as an undercover investigator. Well, I'd say that was true. You got it. You got it, Hannah. Um, Caitlin Foley, who was on the Animal Law Podcast not too long ago, Stated at the ALDF symposium, our job as animal lawyers and advocates is to use the industry's misdeeds as an opportunity to talk about what they're doing and sensitize the public to what this industry is all about. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. But Hannah doesn't like that. Oh, they, they really like to keep an eye on us. I wish I could go to all those conferences anyway. All right. Our next article is from Plant Based News. So, you know, we're on the same page as Plant Based News. And they are featuring this article. And I had read a few, I had seen a few headlines about this. Bear Grylls, that's B-E-A-R-G-R-Y-L-L-S. That's the name of a person. Quit veganism, quote, for his health. Can plant-based diets really cause kidney stones? All right, Bear Grylls, I've never heard of him. However, I kind of thought maybe he was, he seemed to be an athlete from the headlines. I wasn't reading the articles too carefully because I never heard of him. I think I thought maybe he was a football player, but I think that's because I I remembered Bear Bryant, who used to be a very famous football coach, like years and years and years ago. And they're the only two people I know who are named Bear. But apparently, that's not the case. All of this article describes him as, which doesn't really, really uh, pin it down, is that he's a British adventurer. Well, good for you, Bear. I, I wonder what kind of adventures you're going on. He claimed he, he had given up his vegan diet because he saw his health decline and his kid, specifically his kidneys suffer. This was in an interview in GQ magazine, which, you know, of course, is a pretty influential publication. Uh, he said, I was a massive advocate of the vegan lifestyle for years and wrote a book on it, but my health tanked on it. When I got COVID a couple of years ago, I doubled down on what I thought was healthy, raw juice vegetables, and got mega sore kidneys, almost kidney stones. The more research I've done, I've noticed raw vegetables are really not good for you. So I've started incorporating quality grass-fed steak and liver. Well, like, are those the only two choices of foods on the planet? Either raw vegetables or steak and liver? But that's not the only thing that's a problem here. Uh, Believe me. First of all, was he actually vegan? This article asks that question. His book that he wrote was just called Fuel for Life apparently advocates a dairy, he co-wrote it with a nutritionist, some nutritionist. (laughs) The book advocates a dairy, wheat, and sugar-free diet, but also includes recipes for meat. So was he actually vegan? And in in the book, he actually stated that while adopting a more plant-based diet, he still ate what he called, quote, honest meat, which means that it wasn't processed or factory farmed. So we don't know whether, it sounds like he wasn't actually ever vegan. I mean, it sounds like he definitely wasn't actually vegan. And then the, the article goes into quite a bit of good information about oxalates and also mentions that Liam Hemsworth po- blamed his plant-based diet for kidney stones and also cited oxalates. And oxalates, you've probably heard of, they're they're in some plants, especially spinach, um, but I, you know, other plants as well. And So healthy plants, and uh, along with the many other good nutrients in these plants, the oxalates don't have any, have any benefit for humans, and if you eat too many of them, and you don't have enough calcium in, in your body, they can form crystals, and that can harm the kidneys. I mean, you know, I've heard of that before, trying to, I, I, I've always avoided putting raw spinach in my smoothies. So foods high in oxalates include spinach, green cabbage, beets, nuts, tea, rhubarb, chocolate, and whole grain cereals. They're not a big deal. They're really not a huge big deal. If you get enough calcium in your diet, it probably protects you. And probably only certain people are very vulnerable. The the, the article goes on to talk about that, that. It's not everybody that is getting uh, kidney stones from eating really a lot of oxalates. But if you are vulnerable and you're eating, from what he described, a purely raw diet, fruit and vegetables, well, oxalates are also reduced dramatically by cooking. So there's, you know, as we all know, there are some vegetables that are better for you if they're cooked. This is... (laughs) All right, I'm not going to go on and on about this because you probably know a lot about it. And anyway, it's just so stupid. Like, yeah, they didn't have a healthy diet. So the the answer is to eat a lot of liver. Idiots. If diet was a factor, the article points out, in Grills and Hemsworth's kidneys troubles, they may have been consuming too many oxalate-containing foods, such as spinach. And the National Kidney Foundation advises people who form calcium oxalate stones, which is not everybody, to moderate their intake of foods, such as spinach, peanuts, sweet potatoes, and rhubarb. Well, that's a whole different list. The better approach is to, because these are really healthy foods, is to eat calcium-rich foods with your oxalate foods. It's all just bullshit. Unbelievable. All right. Finally, my favorite title of the week. This is from Amanda Radke from her new website, amandaradke.com. Clinging to my guns, my Bible, and my beef too. (laughs) Okay. She's actually responding, apparently a blogger in South Dakota wrote a critique of her trying to paint her as a lunatic, which I have to say, probably not that hard, about her criticisms of um, the new foods. The target of these, she, but she wasn't upset for herself. The target of these ruthless and unrelenting attacks lands squarely on the back of the cow. She feels this is an attack on cows. I never mind the fact that the beef cow, and she's going to talk now about how great cows are um, and how they shouldn't be attacked. The beef cow upcycles feedstuffs that would otherwise end up in landfills, i.e. we feed them garbage. She also grazes on marginal lands that would otherwise be barren deserts, i.e. all land that isn't being used for economic uh, wealth of humans is apparently a barren desert. We don't care about the wildlife that lives there. She takes the grass and grains that she consumes and then converts it into nutrient-dense beef and 100-plus life-enriching byproducts. Oh man. Give me a break. That's what she says. That's what I say. When used nose to tail, the beef animal truly enhances our everyday lives. Even the life of this writer who strongly disagrees with my stance. I'm guessing he never considered the climate impact and the human repercussions that come with highly processed imitation meats. Really? We're going to climate? Like, do you do science at all? Do you know anything? (laughs) Make no mistake, I love capitalism. So she's happy to um, compete. But here's the real problem. She doesn't feel like she's competing in a fair marketplace. When there's a push starting from the top down. Uh, is the South Dakota blogger the top? I don't I don't know. Starting from the top down to paint meat as the bad guy, to regulate livestock producers out of existence. Uh, what? <laughs> I mean, I wish. To regulate stakes to only the affluent. What? (laughs) To blame climate change on the cow. uh, Yeah. To steal our nomenclature and slap it on your fake meat labels. To attack... (laughs) Steal our nomenclature. (laughs) She's talking about calling it quote unquote beef or meat. To attack the reputation of my beef and make unsubstantiated claims about it. And to try to make it the only choice on the meat case. Well, then we have a problem. God, I wish we had had that problem. Uh, Can you imagine if it was the only choice in the meat case? Boy, wouldn't that be delightful. All right, this is is what she's talking about. Meat grown using 3D bioprinting. Pork grown in a Petri dish. Chicken grown using fermentation. Proteins grown using swabs of human cheek cells. Burgers made from crickets, kelp, maggots, and mealworms. Schools serving bugs to children to mitigate climate change. Our sausage developed in a laboratory growing on a scaffold. And get this whiskey from urine. What? <laughs> okay. Okay. That, I, I, I'm with you, Amanda. That sounds gross. That really does. And that's it for rising anxieties.
0: Well, that's it for this week's show. If you like the podcast, we're asking for your support as we kick off our end of year fundraising. We're excited to announce that if you contribute between now and December 31st, your donation will be tripled dollar for dollar up to $20,000. That means that with your donation, plus our barnyard benefactors and an added boost from an anonymous donor, we're hoping to raise $60,000 for the year end. This is the time where we do the vast majority of fundraising for our entire year. If you're not already part of the flock, we invite you to join for $10 a month or $100 a year. You'll get some really cool perks, including weekly bonus content, access to our private Flock Facebook group, which will soon be upgraded into a brand new platform, and an invitation to our monthly Flock Friday Zoom meetings for fun and engaging conversations with me, Marianne, and others in the Flock. You will also have an opportunity to meet with me for one-on-one sessions to discuss your veganism, your activism, or whatever's on your mind. Plus, if you donate $100 or more, I will send you a personalized video message to show you my undying love and gratitude. And brand new this year, if you donate $250 or more, you will get that plus a really cool Our Hen House pin. So if you appreciate Our Hen House, if you believe in our mission to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals, if you find community and solace in our shows and resources, and if you believe in the change-making power of indie media, please make a donation before December 31st, and your donation will be tripled. Contributions of any amount are greatly appreciated. To support us today, visit ourhenhouse.org donate. That's ourhenhouse.org donate. Another great way to support us is to leave a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Also like us on Facebook, where you can also leave us a review or follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. If you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music, thanks to Eric Montgomery of the Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, to our production assistant Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.